readings of the Revised Common Lectionary point us in the direction of two of the cornerstones of our tradition. Love of God and love of neighbor. These particular passages are not exactly softballs. <laughs> At first glance, the gospel seems to be dangling carrots for good behavior. And the passage from Genesis seems to promote child sacrifice and blind faith to a malevolent God. Nice easy readings for the 4th of July, huh? <laughs> There's a lot to say here, so let's just dive right into the Old Testament reading. Abraham's offering of Isaac. And before we get into the judgment seat, let's take a moment to recognize that this is one of the richest texts in the history of all religion. The Abrahamic faith constitutes 54% of all the people on the planet. Consider that 16% of that population, of Earth's population, do not follow any organized religion. And with that in mind, the vast majority of people of faith are connected to this weird story. Three of the major Abrahamic faiths have interpreted this passage differently over the course of time. I'm going to use some broad strokes, so please just know that these are, these are generalizations. In Islam, there's been an emphasis on submission, on Abraham's model of faith through submission. In Judaism, there's been an emphasis on the notion that God will provide. In Christianity, we have focused on redemption, understanding the sacrifice that is later made in the person of Jesus Christ. This is a story we think we know. God tells Abraham to kill Isaac. Abraham is willing, and in the end, God stops the killing and provides the sacrificial lamb. But we may not know this story quite as well as we think, or we might have like different impressions that are imposed upon this story, that we impose upon this story. For example, how old do you envision Isaac to be? Was he a child? Was he a grown person? How old was Abraham? Where did all this happen? Did Abraham know that God would never let him kill his son? The embodiment of the promise? Despite those nebulous aspects, this story is deeply ingrained in our culture and everything from art to music. We see it in the mosaic at Beth Alpha from the 5th century BCE. We see it in Rembrandt's masterful painting, Abraham and Isaac. We hear it in the songs of Leonard Cohen, including the story of Isaac, which contrasts the difficulties of the father-son love and sacrifice with the ease with which the powers that be kill innocent children. Cohen again returned to this story 
on the album released just before his death last year, particularly with the song You Wanted Darker, in which he whispers to a demanding and dark divinity, He neni, he neni, here I am. The Hebrew phrase that Abraham and Isaac respond, Abraham responds to God with he neni, and Isaac responds to Abraham. Like Cohen's lyrics, and this story in general, we are drawn to the question, what if God is a monster? What if God is not loving? What if God asks us to do something horrible? Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard addresses these questions and the relationship between faith and ethics in his book, Fear and Trembling. Kierkegaard examines Christian ethics through the lens of Abraham as the exemplar of faith. By analyzing this story and others, Kierkegaard concludes that faith transcends ethics. He claims that Abraham's actions exhibit a teleological suspension of the ethical. That is, he suggests that Abraham does what is unethical in order to fulfill his duty to God. In other words, faith overrides ethics, at least momentarily. Because faith requires this teleological suspension of the ethical, faith inspires fear and trembling, or what Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard calls dreadfulness. In some cases, this sort of thinking has led to atrocities. Those of you who've read John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven will recall the horrific murders acted out by Mormon fundamentalists with the understanding that God had called them to do it. You guys remember that? Man, that's a, that's a tough read. Yeah. Because of this tension between faith and ethics, we tend to think of faith as a communal act. Living out our faith requires temperance by community. That said, there are times of prophetic justice that remind us that the community is not always right. I'm thinking of King's letters from a Birmingham jail in which he indicts clergy who agreed with King that the social injustices existed. But those folks argued that the battle against racial segregation should be fought solely in the courts, not on the streets. These struggles, these demands of faith are extreme. They remind us that the life of faith is not a passive or docile endeavor, but what do these stories have to do with our daily lives? What are the takeaways for us here at St. Mike's on July 2nd, 2017? We'll start with the word faith. The Greek term that we translate faith, pieces, this is a complicated term that has roots in Greek rhetoric. But for our purposes, we can boil it down to faith or maybe better, trust. Trust. Trust is an essential component of the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham trusts God. Isaac trusts Abraham. That trust is echoed in the phrase they both use that we quoted from Leonard Cohen, hineni, hineni, 
here I am, here I am, I am in this spot, I am willing, I am ready, here I am. We spend a lot of time and energy in denial. Denying who we are, denying who God is, denying our neighbor. We even deny where we are, or we distract ourselves from it. I'm thinking of folks in line with, with like their iPhones checking the messages, and I am one of those folks. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm indicting myself here. But, you know, we do everything from looking at, uh, occupy our minds with our iPhones to people who go to tanning beds, or, you know, we jump into swimming pools. We, we, we have air conditioning. All these things take us out from the world where we are. They take us out of the experience that we hide from where we are. We hide from our experience, and we hide from those we encounter. We deny the presence of 2.5 million undocumented immigrants in California that support our economy and do the work that others do not want to do. We deny the private prisons in places like Adelanto that deny civil rights and religious freedoms. I love that you guys are here. <laughs> I did not have that in mind. Uh, we deny the systemic racism at work in our beautiful city between the mountains and the ocean. But God is inviting us into relationship. God is calling us to eternal witness, to see those around us. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me. Whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple. Truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. Responding to the needs of those around you. Hospitality. That is what Jesus is highlighting in the gospel. As we've seen in the past, that we've discussed in the past, hospitality is born of abundance. It is a response to the feeling that I have enough. I can give to someone else because I have because I am enough. Or as Bob Marley put it, every little thing is going to be all right. It is precisely this notion that everything is going to be all right that we see with Abraham. What we call trust or faith in Abraham could also be called familiarity. It is familiarity with abundance. It is the trust that there will be enough. Abraham has been through the ringer. He left his homeland. Foreigners have courted his wife. His sister-in-law got turned into a pillar of salt. He has wandered around the world on a promise that he would become the father of a new tribe of people. But his wife, Sarah, went past the age of childbearing. A simple act of hospitality is a pivotal moment. And suddenly, with laughter, there is absurd news that the impossible will happen. Two old, 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 old people will have a baby and the baby comes and there is more family drama Abraham's other son and slave mother are kicked out of the house and barely spared their lives by the grace of God and now this long awaited son is alive and likely to carry out this blessing of a long promise to Abraham and Abraham is told to kill that son to kill Isaac, to kill his promise, to kill his dream, to kill 
his own son. We can speculate about this, about what Abraham was thinking. We can say a lot about what he didn't do. He didn't run away in fear. He didn't curse God and die. He didn't. He trusted. In my sophomore year of high school, we had this program called Sophomore Ropes. As you will all likely remember, sophomore year is one of those hard years, one of those strange transitional times where you're not a freshman, you're not a senior, not even a junior, you're just kind of like this weird person. And it can be a really divisive time for people within their class and and just a strange time of growth. So in the middle of that sophomore slump, when people are getting negative and trust is lost, we had this experience called Sophomore Ropes, which was built to build the trust through experience. Yes, some of that experience involved the now ubiquitous, then obscure trust falls. I think some of us are familiar with that, where you line up on either side and a person goes backward into your arms, hopefully landing safely, and usually that works out pretty well. Uh, <laughs> but in addition to that, we had ropes, exercises, and uh, wall scaling, where you had to like get everybody from your like little crew of 20 people, everybody had to get over the wall, uh, which is not an easy thing to do with people of different uh, weights and sizes and um, athletic abilities. Um, But one of the most lasting exercises did not involve any of those kind of physical feats. In a group of about 18, we met in the oldest wooden library room of our school. Think Harry Potter. We've got the right scene. We had some old chairs in there, old tall back chairs in there as well. And one person would be singled out from the group and seated in one of those large chairs. However, they were seated with their back to the rest of the group. So you wouldn't really see the person that was there, which of course opened up all sorts of potential. And it was terrifying. So the one person would be seated there in the chair, and the group would uh, each be asked, everybody went around taking turns responding to a couple simple questions, which boiled down mostly to the following. What do you love about this person? And what do you not love about this person? How can this person grow? Tough, tough work. It demanded trust of the individual and of the group. Exercise relied on our existing familiarity, and familiarity developed through challenge, discomfort, authenticity, hard times. While there are aspects of fear and trembling in these exercises, what mattered was trust. Familiarity, trust. We know 
God. We have known God all our lives, in nature, in the love of parents, in siblings, in family, in the unfolding of time, in beautiful ideas. We know God in church, in the mountains, in the ocean, and in justice rolling down like water. And we know God in the person of Jesus. Today, Jesus reminds us that God's love is not harsh or demanding. God's love is generous, abundant. Jesus reminds us that tapping into God's love is simple, it's easy, it's familiar. Whenever we greet others or they greet us, whenever we witness the prophetic or the righteous, whenever we give water to one of God's children in need, we welcome God. We participate in love eternal. We join the never-ending depths of grace. It is because of that trust and familiarity that we, like Abraham and Isaac and Jesus and Paul, we embody the words of Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. Amen.